going everybody welcome back to the podcast the podcast is tanner talks about stuff that happened as per usual i am tanner and i'm going to be talking about some stuff that happened this is episode two in our conflict of nations series and in this episode we will examine a war that is often forgotten in modern history books but holds a subtle significance in our story We will look at relations between Italy and Austria, Russia and the Ottoman Empire, and brush up on international policy in France and Britain in the 1850s. As I've said before, in future episodes we're going to read into German unification, the scramble for Africa, the events immediately leading up to World War I, the terms at the end of the war that that eventually directly caused World War II, and the fallout from both of these conflicts that led to the Cold War, and what happened as a result. So, So we've got a lot to do, but today, This week, we're going to focus primarily on France between 1815 and 1850, and then the Crimean War. But right before we get into that, remember that this podcast is listener-supported. If you would like to donate to the podcast to keep this party going, please head over to the Anchor.fm podcast page. Just go to Anchor.fm and search Tanner Talks About Stuff That Happened. It will pop up right there. If you'd like to donate to the podcast, that is where you can do it. I would be very grateful. And if you do enjoy the podcast, please head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and drop me a five-star review to let me know that you're listening and you like what you hear. All right, without further ado, let's get on to the show. Our story left off last at the second banishment of Emperor Napoleon I from France to the African island of St. Helena, right smack in the middle of the southern Atlantic Ocean. So what happens to France afterward? If you haven't listened to episode one, to understand where we're picking up here, you probably should. I mean, obviously not totally necessary, but to get the full picture, probably a good idea to do that. So remember how before Napoleon showed up, it was a really bad time to be living in France? With the French Revolution and the Reign of Terror and all manner of political instability, Napoleon's rise to power was appealing to the French people because it meant that they wouldn't have to worry about that anymore. Now, with Napoleon no longer even present on the European continent, everyone realized that none of these problems really went away. They were back to square one. And who took advantage of that? Two Lagarde Francais, French dudes named Louis XVIII and Charles X. Louis and Charles were both of royal blood, and they were brothers. And they had a third brother, Louis XVI. You may be familiar with Louis XVI, though you don't know him by name. He was once the leader of France, which was a bad place to be during the French Revolution when the French people decided to use aggressive diplomacy to solve their corrupt monarch problem. Needless to say, Louis's younger brothers, Louis and Charles, decided that while the whole Napoleon thing had been fun, 
Things were better off when their family was in power, so they began taking France back to where it was before Napoleon, instituting a constitutional monarchy. It's time for our first definition of the day. What is a constitutional monarchy? Well, a constitutional monarchy is a form of monarchy in which the sovereign exercises authority in accordance with a written or unwritten constitution. Constitutional monarchy differs from absolute monarchy, in which a monarch holds absolute power, for which constitutional monarchs are bound to exercise their powers and authorities within limits prescribed by an established legal framework. Today, countries with constitutional monarchies include Liechtenstein, Morocco, and Kuwait, where many powers are given to the monarchy, and the United Kingdom, the Netherlands, Spain, Belgium, Sweden, Malaysia, and Japan, where some power is delegated to the monarchy, but most rests with parliaments or other governmental bodies, and the monarchy takes on a relatively ceremonial role. So in France in 1815, Louis and Charles begin reinstating a similar monarchy that was in place prior to the French Revolution. However, the major difference between the two monarchies is that prior to the revolution, the monarchy was absolute, meaning the king had absolute power. After Napoleon, this was changed to a constitutional monarchy, and power was delegated to several government areas, though Louis XVIII was still made king. So did this nullify basically the entire French Revolution? Symbolically, yes, since the revolution was an attempt to create democracy. But in practicality, not really. In all reality, Louis and Charles didn't really attempt to reverse most of the reforms instituted during the revolution. They also attempted to maintain some of the foreign policy aims that Napoleon had enacted, like limiting Austrian influence. However, they did establish new positive relations with Spain and the Ottoman Empire, both of which Napoleon had royally pissed off during his time on the throne. So the French were kind of just okay with another king taking the throne after they'd kicked out Louis XVI and endured Napoleon's endless wars? Well, you have to look at it this way. They got to keep most of their government reforms, and the new king, Louis XVIII, didn't seem to be a warmonger. He wanted peace, so what was the big deal? For about 15 years, Louis and Charles ruled France, and the region stayed relatively quiet. France saw modest industrial and economic growth, and aristocratically ruled business gave way to a rising free market economy. But this free market economy came at the cost of the generationally wealthy French landowners, who were upset with the new monarchy for not protecting their wealth. Aristocrats cre created new political parties to challenge the monarchy, and in response, middle and lower class citizens created political parties as well. They demanded change, and the monarchy was surrounded on all sides. Whatever the crown chose, someone would be outraged. So, they did the worst thing possible. I'm not joking. The worst thing they could have done in this situation. In 1830, due to the unrest and the constant bickering, they just dissolved the political parties, restricted the freedom of the press, as well as voting rights of the middle class, and scheduled new elections. I wasn't kidding. Literally, this is the worst thing they could have done. But... You know, in their defense, their hand was forced. They had to do something. So at least they did something rather than nothing. It just happened to be the worst choice. The public was outraged. Riots broke out across France, and political opposition began drafting new constitutions. No, this wasn't the king drafting constitutions or anybody in his cabinet or his parliament. These were opposition parties who took it upon themselves to create a new government, saying that the king was unfit to be in office. So they wrote a new constitution. In fact, they wrote several new constitutions. In July of 1830, the king abdicated, and a new king ascended to the throne, and he was unrelated to Louis or Charles. 
completely unrelated. His name was Louis Philippe, and he didn't want to be seen as pompous. He avoided grandiose demonstrations of power and was known initially as the People's King, even though he was supported by the bourgeoisie. Despite his status as a champion of the people, he was still a king, and after decades under monarchical rule, there were a lot of French who were tired of monarchy after the whole ordeal of the French Revolution. And when their demands were ignored, it led to events like the July Revolution and... Yeah, stuff like that. This new monarchy ruled from 1830 to 1848, and the entire period was marred with political unrest as the bourgeois slowly rose to dominate the country again. In 1848, another revolt occurred, and King Louis-Philippe stepped down with a new republic taking his place. This republic lasted for four years and was, once again, marred with controversy and unrest before the president of the republic decided he was tired of the constant political bickering and followed in the footsteps of one of his relatives. He was the nephew of the Grand Emperor Napoleon and decided to honor his uncle's legacy by paralleling it. In 1852, as president, he rejected the republican constitution and made himself the emperor of what he called the Second French Empire, naming himself Napoleon III. And he actually did end up ruling for almost 20 years. Monarchy, democracy, monarchy, republic, monarchy. Doesn't anyone get tired of this? Yeah, of course. But this time was a bit different, because Napoleon III actually had big plans for France. He modernized its railway system, rebuilt Paris from the ground up, creating the majestic Champs-Élysées that we we see today. And modernized the French economy. He was actually doing a lot of good in France. And as Napoleon III sets about enacting his will on France... This is when we gotta zoom out to look at the rest of Europe. Up until this point, we've spent a lot of our time in the series focused on France. Pretty much almost all of our time focused on France. Now we're gonna glance over what's going on in the rest of Europe at this time. There's a lot of tension on several fronts. So here are the relationships you need to remember in 1850, these three. One, Russia and the Ottoman Empire. Two, Austria-Hungary and Italy and three, France and Prussia. So let's investigate number one first. Obviously, Russia and the Ottoman Empire. By 1853, Russia is on its way to becoming a world superpower. The territory it controls is massive, extending all the way over to Alaska, and the populations of its cities is steadily rising. Russian national pride has swelled after Napoleon's failed invasion, and ever since, the Russian government is searching for ways to keep up that national pride in its rise to power, there's one big problem. Russia does not have any warm water ports. It has access to numerous ports in the north with the Baltic states, but those ports tend to get too cold to use in the winter. Russia looks southward to the Black Sea to create new ports that were operable year-round. At the time, the Black Sea is controlled by the ailing Ottoman Empire. The Ottomans had once been a mighty and ferocious empire, but had been steadily weakening since the mid-1700s. They'd fought wars against Serbia, Greece, Egypt, Syria, and Russia in the last century, and had either suffered a costly victory or had lost outright each of these wars. To add insult to injury, to have the materials to fight these wars, the Ottomans had to appeal to other nations for the money to pay their soldiers and purchase their equipment. They'd lost most of their national prestige and their seat as a major player on the world stage. Now, 
they saw the Russians eyeing the Black Sea. The Black Sea is a big deal because it links to the Mediterranean by way of the Dardanelles and the city of Istanbul. In 1853, the Ottomans control the Dardanelles, so they can tax the Russians whatever they want to use it, or outright refuse their ship's passage in times of contention. The Russians need a way through if they want to achieve superpower status instead of having their ports blockaded by ice during the wintertime. The Russians decide that war is the best way for a quick fix. They'd fought the Ottomans four times in the last century and won every time. It stands to reason they could win again. In addition, Russia had received word that all Orthodox Christians living in the Balkans under Ottoman rule were being treated as second-class citizens. While these Christians were still living peaceful lives, word was they were not being held to the same esteem as Muslims living under Ottoman rule. Russia saw themselves as the defenders of these Christians, and the war they prepared to wage became something of a crusade. The Russians made preparations for war, with the Ottoman Empire. Now, onto the second international relationship we have to look at in this period, Austria-Hungary and Italy. After Napoleon's defeat in 1814 and 1815, Italy was removed from French rule only to be placed under mainly Austrian jurisdiction. Members of the Habsburg-Austrian bloodline were placed in positions of power among Italian states, and the nation would remain this way for a while. For decades, whispers of independence and secret nationalist societies grew among Italians, until in 1848, a series of revolts took place on the Italian peninsula, though they were all crushed entirely. Italian nationalism would have to wait, though there was a single Italian nation that escaped the Habsburgs' grasp. It was called the Kingdom of Sardinia, and it consisted of the northwestern portion of Italy and the island of Sardinia off the west coast of Italy. It was entirely independent and entirely Italian. Italian nationalists saw it as a beacon of hope for what Italy could be someday, and they knew that if Italy was to be unified, the King of Sardinia, Victor Emmanuel II, would be the one to lead it. All Sardinia needed now was proof that it meant business, and the opportunity arose when the Ottoman Empire and Russia seemed prime for war. The third international relationship we'll examine around the mid-1800s is the relationship between Prussia and France. From 1815 onward, the German Confederation, which we talked about earlier, had been moving steadily toward becoming a unified German nation, rather than a large group of independent German states, and France was paying attention to this. Napoleon III had risen to power as the new emperor of the Second French Empire, and he knew that if Germany unified, it would usurp France as the dominant continental power in Europe. Napoleon III needed a way to show his resolve as a military leader to assert dominance over the steadily growing Germanic people. Okay, so we've got the Italian Kingdom of Sardinia and the Second French Empire both needing a way to show their strength to the rising German Confederation and Austria-Hungary, respectively, and Russia and the Ottoman Empire are on the brink of war. I mean, this is a recipe for war if I've ever seen one. Remember, Russia saw itself the protector of the Orthodox Christians living in the Ottoman Empire, so Napoleon III decided to provoke the Russians by declaring France the sovereign defender of all Orthodox Christians living in Palestine on the coast of the Eastern Mediterranean. The Ottoman Empire was put in a tight spot, with both of these major powers declaring themselves to be the only ones allowed to be called the defenders of the faith. 
And this kind of developed into a middle school lunchroom argument over who was the real best friend. Both France and Russia looked to the Ottomans to state who they believed was the protector of Orthodox Christians in the Ottoman Empire, which honestly is a weird situation already. In response, the Ottomans declared that Russia was the real protector of Orthodox Christians, which makes sense considering Russia could probably clobber the Ottomans if war came to it. France was essentially on another continent and therefore less of a threat. However, unfazed, Napoleon III decided to try his hand at gunboat diplomacy. What's gunboat diplomacy? In international politics, the term gunboat diplomacy refers to the pursuit of foreign policy objectives with the aid of conspicuous displays of naval power, implying or constituting a direct threat of warfare should terms not be agreeable to the superior force. Notable examples of this include Britain's intimidation of China during the Opium Wars in the early 1800s, the Chilean government sending a heavily armored warship to the port of Colón and refusing to let it depart until American troops retreat during the Panama Crisis, the Great White Fleet commissioned by President Teddy Roosevelt to sail around the globe and dock at various ports to demonstrate America's military might, and the ongoing Spratly Islands dispute in the Pacific between China, Vietnam, Malaysia, the Philippines, and others. Utilizing this mentality, Napoleon III sent a large gunship called the Charlemagne and armed with 80 large guns to the Black Sea to show the Sultan that he meant business. This violated a treaty that had been signed 10 years earlier between the Ottomans, Britain, Russia, France, and Prussia, declaring that no warships could pass through the Dardanelles except for allies of the Ottoman Empire during wartime. This put the Ottomans in a tight spot. Not only was a big, scary French ship in their harbor, but also it had violated the treaty signed to protect their interests. Their hand was forced. Either they could call out the French and risk their city being bombarded and the powers of Europe take sides, or they could recognize France's claims that they are the real defender of the Orthodox Christians in the Ottoman Empire and stall an inevitable conflict for at least another year. They chose the latter and signed a new treaty with France, who was closely aligned with the Roman Catholic Church. And the treaty declared that the French had sovereignty over all Catholic holy places in the empire, including the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem, where tradition holds that it is built on the site where Jesus Christ was born. Obviously, the Russians, who had claimed dibs first, were upset about this. In response, Tsar Nicholas I finalized his preparations for war with the Ottomans and began a diplomatic offensive in an attempt to keep Britain, whose relationship with Russia had soured over the past few decades, or France, from allying with the Ottomans in the coming battle. Russia couldn't afford to lose their target of the Dardanelles in the unmolested passage through the Mediterranean to the Atlantic or the Suez Canal. If the French or British did ally with the Ottomans, the war would be much more difficult to win and likely a lot longer than expected. Russia attempted to persuade the Ottomans to reconsider their choice to have the French be in charge of Catholic holy places in their empire, but the Ottomans refused. It turns out, the British had beat them to the punch, and had a British ambassador by the Sultan's side when the Russians showed up, persuading him to shoo away the Russian diplomats. And it was the last straw. Tsar Nicholas I rallied his forces and marched on the Balkan principalities of Wallachia and Moldavia, occupying them and heading for the Ottoman Empire. Britain and France sent naval forces to support the Ottomans in the Black Sea. 
the Crimean War had begun. We're going to take a really quick time out and hear a word from our sponsors. When the war broke out, Russia made a series of quick moves that established their foothold on the battlefield. They occupied Wallachia and Moldavia and destroyed an Ottoman fleet at the Battle of Sinop, no doubt smirking at these easy victories. But in the next year, they faced setback after setback as their plan fell apart. They'd expected feeble Ottoman resistance, but were met with a formidable foe. The Ottoman confidence bolstered by their newfound allies in Britain and France, even though Britain and France hadn't even put boots on the ground yet. To add to this, the Russian army was technologically backward and rarely even had doctors to treat sick or wounded soldiers. With the disease riddling their lines in their march through the Balkans, the Russian army was a skeleton crew by the time it even reached the battlefield. And to add to this, Tsar Nicholas I imagined life as a Catholic to be a living hell inside the Ottoman Empire, when in, in reality, that wasn't true. He had expected that when the Russians entered Moldavia and Wallachia, it would inspire a popular uprising against the Ottomans by the Catholic populations. But when the Russian army arrived, they were disappointed to find that the Catholics living in the Balkans actually had few qualms with the Ottomans and weren't interested in a rebellion. A year into the war, the Russians were forced out of the Balkans altogether. In the Black Sea, things didn't look much better. After the Russians destroyed an Ottoman fleet at Sinop, Britain and France joined together to send a fleet through the Dardanelles into the Black Sea, and the Russians took one look before retreating to the port of Sevastopol in Crimea on Russian soil. They knew they couldn't take on a British and French fleet, so they actually ended up sinking their own ships and taking all the guns and men from the ships to re reinforce the garrison in Sevastopol, where a famous showdown was going to take place. For the next two years, France, Britain, and the Ottoman Empire would remain fully in control of the Black Sea. Seeing the Russians barricaded inside Sevastopol, the Allies made their move. They'd been planning for a land invasion for some time, but didn't quite know where to do it. But with the Russians massing their forces in the port city, they now knew where to deliver a fatal blow. England and France massed their forces and prepared to set sail for the Black Sea. But just before they left they received word that the Kingdom of Sardinia had decided to send an expeditionary force to join them in the fight. 15,000 Italian soldiers boarded the ships to accompany the French and British to take down the Russians in Crimea. The coalition army landed on the shores of Crimea in 1854 and began marching on Sevastopol while the armada bombarded it for days. The Russians came out to meet the ground forces more than once, but more than once ran back to Sevastopol defeated. The coalition cut supply lines and communication out of the city and continued to shell it before they settled down for a long siege. In the meantime, Britain and France blockaded Russian ports in the north, making the Russian situation even more dire. Tsar Nicholas was out of options, and he knew it. Unfortunately, he would never see the end of the war. With a guilt-ridden conscience for the catastrophe he'd led his country into, Nicholas I fell ill with pneumonia and died before the war saw a ceasefire. The siege of Sevastopol continued through the winter, into the spring, even through the following summer before finally coming to a head in September of 1855. French, British, Ottoman, and Italian troops led all-out assaults on the fort surrounding the city, and one by one, each fell to the attacks full of beleaguered Russian soldiers. The final assault on the city was filled with intense urban fighting, and the Russians were defending it heroically, 
costing the Allies thousands of casualties. But eventually the city did fall, and with it, the last major Russian access point to the Black Sea, which had been their objective from the start, to use the Black Sea. With the battles in the Caucasus turning against them, the war in the Black Sea more than lost, British and French blockading the ports in the Baltic Sea, an attack by coalition forces from the Pacific, believe it or not, and the Russian army fleeing from the Balkans, the Russians knew it was a futile effort to try and fight back any longer. The British populace was calling for the war to end, though the British government wanted to expand it and so unrest inside Russia to eliminate their threat forever, but France wanted out. It had sent far more troops to Crimea than any other nation, and had lost a similar ratio. When Russia sued for peace, the leaders met in Paris. The Ottomans got their lost territory back, the Russians got Sevastopol and other cities back, the Ottomans got Moldavia and Wallachia back, it was all back to normal. Yeah, basically there were very minimal territorial changes from the Crimean War. And for a three-year war costing more than 200,000 lives, it seems a bit underwhelming. Well, it is. But there were some diplomatic relations that resulted from the Crimean War that are often overlooked in the grand scheme of things. Let's start with Sardinia. The Kingdom of Sardinia had sent an expeditionary force to Crimea with the French and British because they wanted to prove, specifically to Austria, that they could hold their own on the world stage and weren't afraid of dabbling in international affairs in a militaristic sense. Prior to the war, Austria was allied with Russia, but had elected not to participate in the conflict when it first broke out, which broke the alliance. However, when Sardinia decided to send troops to Crimea, Austria was suddenly faced with a dilemma. Side with Russia, their former ally, and risk of war with the nationalist Italians on their western front, who had a lot of sympathy from Italians on the peninsula, or side with the coalition. Austria ultimately elected to side with the coalition, and even sent a few troops to occupy territories in the Balkans, though Austrian soldiers rarely saw any fighting. After the war, the Sardinian army returned victorious and had solidified their position on the international stage as a recognized Italian power. Austria, however, looked weak on the same international stage, having abandoned their ally in a war only to turn on them when pressured to do so, but still offering little to no help on the battlefront. Losing their alliance with Russia made them diplomatically isolated, and if war was to break out between Austria and anyone else, it would likely mean the end of Austria altogether, as no one would be there to help. With that being said, the Italian peninsula started looking very appealing to the Sardinians, who had long wished for a united Italy inside the peninsula. With their newfound alliance with the French, the feasibility of a war with Austria to take what was rightfully theirs was seeming more and more possible. Next up, let's look at France. Napoleon III had accomplished his goal of bringing France back to the limelight, and Europe once again recognized France as the leading power on the continent. With this reascendancy to glory, Napoleon III set his eyes on his leading rival, Prussia. Prussia had not joined the other powers in beating back the Russians, but had quietly watched as the war played out. This nursed Napoleon's distrust in them. Britain was perhaps one of the biggest winners of the war. They moderated the peace talks and mandated Russia scuttling most of what remained of their fleet, which Britain had worried would one day challenge the might of the Royal Navy. This, and the war had crushed Russian optimism for future imperial endeavors, 
They also put the Ottoman Empire back in their place as the sick man of Europe, refusing to recognize them as a world power and keeping the Ottomans under their thumb. Everything Britain set out to accomplish had been accomplished. In my opinion, the most important two countries to watch here are the Ottoman and Russian empires, respectively. Both were nursing bruised egos and they responded differently. Russia was forced to acknowledge that their technological inefficiency and political malpractice had lost them the war. Their railways were few and unreliable, their military was ill-trained and ill-equipped, and their leadership was corrupt. Russia was also by no means self-sufficient. As a result of the war, Russia would begin a massive overhaul in the industrial sector and set into motion the sweeping reforms that would lead to their status as a military superpower in the 20th century. The Ottomans, however, were completely devastated by the war. Though they did emerge victorious, it was only with the help of France, Sardinia, and Britain, and even then, their treasury was essentially empty as peace talks began. To add insult to injury, their allies left the table without recognizing them as a world power, as they'd hoped would come with a victory. Seeds of bitterness against Britain, France, and Sardinia began to sow inside the Ottoman government. Seeds which would eventually bear fruit that would fuel the Ottoman soldiers on the beaches of Gallipoli as they had the opportunity to exact their revenge on the British in 1915. That's going to do it for the show today, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you all for listening to this episode where we covered the Crimean War. Tune in next week where we cover eruption of war between Prussia and a lot of Europe, honestly. It's going to be an interesting couple of episodes where we start getting closer and closer to the 20th century and the eruption of World War I. We're really getting into the nitty-gritty now, and I hope you're starting to see the pieces come together where all of this starts making sense. Again, if you enjoy the podcast, please head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and drop me a five-star review to let me know that you enjoy what you're hearing. And if you do feel so inclined, feel free to donate to the podcast. Head over to the podcast page at anchor.fm, search Tanner Talks About Stuff That Happened, and there is a button where you can support the podcast monetarily and keep the party going. Let's keep the party going, why don't we? Again, thank you all for listening, and I will catch you next week.